sentire media. If in Italy there were a government worthy of the name, this very day they would have sent agents and policemen to disband us and occupy our headquarters. An armed organization with a hierarchy and regulations is inconceivable in a state that has its own army and police. The issue is that there is no state. It's no use. We must be the ones to take power. Benito Mussolini, 1922. One hundred years ago today, a series of events over several days brought fascist leader Benito Mussolini and his party to power. These events culminated in the Camice Nere, the black shirts, the armed branch of the fascist party entering Rome in what came to be known as La Marcia su Roma, the March on Rome. You may be imagining something a bit different from what actually happened. By the time the first groups of black shirts entered the city on October the 30th, Mussolini had already been assigned the task of forming a new government by King Victor Emmanuel III. A task he had fulfilled on the very same day he had received it, handing in a list of ministers, a lot of whom did not know they had been nominated as such. But to understand the fateful days of the March on Rome, we need to take a step back in time to the birth of the fascist movement in 1919 with the fasci di combattimento and the phenomenon of squadrismo, the action squads. We have mentioned before that the symbol of the fasci, from which fascism got its name, was not new. The word fascio means bundle and was an ancient Greek and then Roman symbol, a bundle of sticks representing the unbreakable strength in numbers united and standing together, as opposed to the single stick which can be more easily broken. They borrowed not only the symbol of the fasci, but also the hat of the Bersaglieri, which they turned black, and the black shirts of the Arditi, a section of the Italian infantry from World War I. Indeed, they came to be known also as the Camicianere, the black shirts. These squads terrorized sectors of the Italian civil and political society between the year of their formation and the march. Three years which were a dark prelude to the twenty that were about to come. The formation of the fasci coincided with a period known as the Biennio Rosso, the two-year red period, a time in which the Socialist Party gained strength in Italy, organizing strikes and walkouts, occupations of factories and lands, and sabotage actions, putting the fear of a revolution like the Bolshevik one into the hearts of the industrial, landholding, and liberal political establishment. The Socialist Party won many local elections, 
taking control of important municipalities, particularly in the north, and fared well in the general elections in 1919. The fascists had also participated in the election, failing to gain even a single seat, and promoting the Milanese Socialist Party to stage a mock funeral for Benito Mussolini. It is in particular as a counter to socialist activity that the black shirts started theirs. They would attack protest marches, damage property, beat and kill prominent socialist representatives, and in general harass them in various ways. One characteristic method that was used was forcing them to drink substantial quantities of castor oil that would then cause them to defecate profusely. If someone is killed, they can become a martyr. If they are full of their own excrements and paraded round on the hood of a car, they are just an embarrassment. By the end of 1920, the perceived danger of the Red Scare abated, but the guerrilla civil war between socialists and fascists continued. Although Mussolini did not control every single aspect of the violence, he was often the organizer and procured the weapons necessary, often willingly supplied by sympathetic members of the army. 1921 saw Mussolini try to reach a truce with the socialists as part of a general push to bring more political legitimacy to the fascist movement. That year saw the fascists enter parliament with 35 deputies, which was very far from giving them any sort of majority, but made them an interesting partner for the liberal right. The truce with the socialists did not last, and when the fascist party was officially founded on the 9th of November 1921, Mussolini was forced by his more hard-wing collaborators to go back on it. The summer of 1922 saw the definitive defeat and fall of the socialist strongholds, with the fascists destroying union headquarters and forcing local administrations to step down under threat of violence. In July, Ravenna fell. Rimini, Novara, Viterbo, Cremona and Bologna. On the 3rd of August, the fascists assaulted Palazzo Marino in Milan, forcing the socialist mayor Filippetti to step down. The anti-fascist movement made one last-ditch attempt to turn the tide by organizing the Sciopero Legalitario, a strike to bring back the rule of law. It was a failure, due also to the fascist organization that was ready to send in workers to factories, farmers to fields, and even bus and train drivers. A lot of accidents happened that day. In all of the violence and fascist triumphs, there were two examples that show how fascism could have been defeated before it even took power, Sarzana and Parma. The events known as the Facts of Parma or Barricades of Parma took place in early August 1922 from the 1st to the 6th. A punitive fascist attack was planned on the city for their participation in the recent failed strike, but the Arditi del Popolo, a paramilitary anti-fascist movement that had been formed the year before and included, like the fascists, ex-fighters of the Arditi section of the army in World War I, were having none of it. They set up barricades and for days the fascists could not enter. After the initial failure of a quadrumvirate of four local fascist leaders, national representative Italo Balbo, known for his violence and cruelty, was called in. 
he also failed. In the end, the government intervened. The fascists were forced to back down, and the city settled down to wait for the next storm. Parma worried Italo Balbo and the fascist movement in general. It showed that when the people got organized and the authorities chose not to turn a blind eye or even help the fascist squads, but actually did their job and defended the law, the black shirts could be defeated. Years later, Italo Balbo would cross the Atlantic by plane. Soon after, writing would appear on the banks of the Parma River that he had not been able to conquer, showing a spirit of resistance of the city that had been temporarily bent but not broken. In local Parma dialect it said, Balbo, te passe l'Atlantic, mumiga la Perma. Balbo, you crossed the Atlantic, but not the Parma River. Unfortunately, Parma was the exception. As violence continued all over Italy, Mussolini kept his sights on the grand prize, Rome. While the idea of a military attack on the capital took form, Mussolini continued to talk to the liberal establishment, who believed they could neutralize the fascist threat by bringing them into the folds of government. Men like the old fox of Italian politics, Giovanni Giolitti, or the current prime minister, Luigi Facta, felt confident that they could subdue this Mussolini creature with the mechanisms of traditional politics. The political establishment was not the only sector Mussolini cuddled up to over that summer. He also managed to create ties with the industrialists, landowners, and also the secret Masonic societies, the army, and against his own ideas, the church. Also, the royal family. Some of the fascist hierarchy were talking to the Queen Mother, Margarita of Savoy. It seems that on one occasion, when they were leaving the presence of the Queen Mother, they asked for her blessing, to which she said, Go now, I am always in favour of things that are beautiful and good. Meanwhile, as the fascists sealed their victory over the socialists, they turned their attention to the liberal state, to representatives and police. Obviously, a secret plan to storm the capital and take power was not going to stay secret for long, and by the beginning of October, word was starting to spread. The fascists then sent out a press release saying that the whole idea was just fake news. Some things never change. As the month drew on, Prime Minister Factor had an ace up his sleeve. He needed a man who could match the charisma of Benito Mussolini, who could sway the masses and galvanize the followers, perhaps a man who had actually invented some of the ideas behind fascism, such as the mutilated victory after World War I. Someone who was a proven war hero and had even taken over a city already, Gabriele D'Annunzio. The national poet, after an initial feeling of enthusiasm, had become more critical of the fascist movement. Now, the government turned to him. Only on the 13th of October, D'Annunzio fell from a balcony of his villa on Lake Garda. He survived, but to this day, the mystery of what happened remains. The days went by. Prime Minister Facta continued to receive worrying reports and then reassuring the king that everything was under control. 
Mussolini assigned the military organization of the coming march to a quadrumvirate, four men of the fascist hierarchy, Italo Balbo, Cesare De Vecchi, Emilio De Bono, and Michele Bianchi. They set up their headquarters in the city of Perugia, which they realized in hindsight to be a silly idea. It was too far from Rome, too far from Milan where Mussolini was, and both transport and communications weren't that great. The March on Rome had a sort of practice run. On the 24th of October in Naples at the San Carlo Theatre, the Fascist Party had its National Congress. At the theatre, full of dignitaries and representatives of the institutions, Mussolini showed his institutional face in a relatively calm speech about the prospects for a government coalition with the liberals. Later, in Piazza del Plebiscito, he showed his more fierce face for the mob of enthusiastic black shirts. We will take the old ruling class by the throat. Rome! Rome! Either they give us power, or we will take it. Marching on Rome. There was no social media at the time to compare the two speeches. After the second speech, the fascists paraded around the city, singing their signature song, Giovinezza, Youth. Sadly, if you Google the song, you will see it on YouTube, which is not the sad thing. The sad thing are the comments, expressing pride in being Italian. Not the greatest moment to be proud of. While the fascists paraded around, Mussolini headed back to Milan, leaving Naples at 3am, changing in Rome and arriving at his home in Milan after a 20-hour train trip. The mobilization towards Rome began, focusing on the important railroad hubs of Tivoli, Santa Marinella and Monte Rotondo. Prime Minister Luigi Facta received all the information and reassured the king that after Naples, the threat of Rome had likely passed. The constant reassuring earned him the nickname Nutro Fiducia, I am hopeful. The king was away at his hunting lodge in San Rosore in Tuscany. In the following days, it became clear to all that Facta was being perhaps a little too hopeful. The king was called back to Rome urgently. On the 27th of October, Facta and the king met. King Victor Emmanuel III would receive guests in his throne room, but we mustn't think of a huge and sumptuous room like other rulers' residences. He had chosen the smallest room in the Quirinale Palace, in the hopes that a smaller room would hide the impression of how really small the man was. Standing at 1 meter 53 or 5 feet, he was known as Shaboletta, Little Sabre, since they had had to make a special smaller sword for him that wouldn't drag on the ground when he walked. In general, he did not like the Quirinale Palace, which he considered to be bad luck and called the House of Priests, since it had been built and belonged to the popes until Rome was taken by the Kingdom of Italy in 1870. The king preferred to live in his residence of Villa Ada, much further north of the city. 
after his meeting with the king, Luigi Facta, left feeling relieved. The king had even suggested that Facta declare the Stato d'Assedio, the state of siege, a sort of martial law that would allow him to call out the army and suspend certain rights, such as freedom of assembly and movement, potentially making the fascist mobilization illegal. The declaration was signed by all ministers but one, Arnaldo de las Barba, the socialist minister for labor and social security. He could not be found. This is because he was otherwise engaged with his lover. He later begged to have his name added post-fact to cover up his tracks with his wife. Incidentally, the fact that a minister for welfare already existed is yet more proof that the latter-day fascist apologists who claim that Mussolini also did good things, such as create a pension scheme, is false. PM Factor went to bed thinking that he had the king on his side, that he could defend Rome, and that Mussolini, in any case, was only bluffing. Perhaps as he fell asleep, he even daydreamed about how he would go down in history as the man who stopped fascism. He was rudely awakened during the night by reports that the fascists had put their plan into action, not towards Rome yet, but starting with the city they had their headquarters in, Perugia, where the quadrumvirate moved from their base of operations at the Brufani Hotel and occupied the police station. Meanwhile, all over the country, the black shirts occupied police stations, telegraph and post offices, and train stations, taking control of vital transport and communications channels. On the morning of the 28th of October, the citizens of Rome woke up to a militarized city. The general supposedly responsible for the defense of the city was actually on holiday. Good timing, and the task fell to his substitute, Emanuele Puglisi, who proved he was up to the task by blocking train routes and placing soldiers at the Nomentana Gate, among others. The fascist contingent in Santa Marinella, not being able to proceed by train, got off and started to walk to Rome, under constant driving rain. It had been raining on and off for days, and on the 28th it poured down all day on the wet, hungry, thirsty black shirts who had little food and water with them. After weeks and months of inactivity and indecision, it seemed the state was finally ready to defend itself from the fascist threat. The newspapers came out that day reporting that the state of siege had been implemented, and indeed, all that was missing was the king's signature. At 11.30 on the 28th of October 1922, Prime Minister Luigi Facta went up to the palace of the Quirinale to get the signature of King Victor Emmanuel III. The king refused to sign. The reason he gave was that it was impossible to defend the city. He had only 8,000 men to counter the expected 20,000 black shirts who would soon march upon the city. The truth of the matter was very different. Indeed, there were not 8,000 troops to defend the city, but 28,000 better equipped and armed than the fascists and in defensive positions. 
The king perhaps could not bring himself to tell Facta about a conversation he had had with general and World War hero Armando Diaz. The king had asked him, can I count on the army? To which the general had replied, of course, your majesty, but it would be better not to test it. Time after time, the army had shown that they were sympathetic to the fascist cause, not only the rank-and-file soldiers, but also higher-ranking officers who had supplied the black shirts with weapons. Of the 28,000 defending the city, how many could be trusted to shoot on the fascists if ordered to? There was also a personal reason for the king to refuse. His cousin and possible heir to the throne, Emanuele Filiberto, Duke of Aosta, had been very explicit in his fascist sympathies, and, despite an order by the king to stay where he was, the duke had moved to his residence in Bivania, near Perugia, where the fascist headquarters were. The duke would have made a much more kingly impression, and the fascist would have been happy to put him on the throne if the king was not willing to cooperate. Emanuele Filiberto was taller, more handsome and had a deep commanding voice, and could actually be social. The king, for example, had prohibited even balls for fear of looking foolish. Then maybe the king had also been speaking to his fascist-loving mother, or perhaps he simply saw in Mussolini and his movement the best way to re-establish the stability that Italy so badly needed. The king came up with another idea that showed how he certainly had not grasped the reality of the situation. He would assign the role of forming a new government to an old hand of Italian politics, Antonio Salandra, with an offer to Mussolini to enter into a government coalition with Salandra as prime minister, offering the fascists some of the key ministries they had been asking for ever since their first members were elected into parliament. The member of the fascist elite who was considered closest to the monarchy was Cesare Maria de Vecchi, who got a lift from a sympathizer and raced to Rome. It was the 29th of October. There the king informed him that he had been asked to sign the state of siege and had refused, to which de Vecchi replied that the Italians would remember this and always be grateful. The first part now sounds like a sort of prophecy. After a moment of fleeting pride, it was the king himself who completed the prophecy. Yes, they will remember to blame me for it. Many must have thought of the king's refusal to sign when on the 2nd of June 1946, they voted to get rid of the monarchy in favour of a republic. De Vecchi felt that he could not refuse the king, so he agreed to the idea of a compromise Salandra government but said that he had to ask Mussolini first, and word was sent. Mussolini, knowing that martial law had not been imposed, decided to play his cards all the way to the end and refused. After all, what would the black shirt say if he reached a compromise with the very powers he had railed against when victory seemed in their grasp? So Mussolini refused, and the king gave in. He would assign the task of forming a new government, to the fascist leader. After receiving confirmation that it was not some sort of trap, after days of intense waiting, Mussolini broke down and said to his brother Arnaldo in dialect, if only father were here. 
which is a curious thing to say since Alessandro Mussolini, who had drunk himself to death in 1910, had been a devout socialist, and one wonders how he would have taken to his son turning his back on the socialists and then beating and killing many of them. So began the march on Rome for Benito Mussolini, the last fascist to get moving after sending the others ahead and waiting in Milan to see how things went. From his main headquarters, known as Il Corvo, the lair, he headed home. I say main headquarters because Mussolini had a second lair in Milan, a bar he would go to when he wanted to use the phone or have conversations without fear of being bugged. The Bar Jamaica. Here you could have a cappuccino made by Nonna Lina, legendary in Milan. The bar is still there to this day. Legend would have it that when Mussolini left the city on the 29th of October, he left an open tab that he never paid. He first went home to pick up a suitcase packed by his wife, Rachele, and then hopped into the car of his lover, Margarita Sarfatti, and went to the station. He left Milan at 8.30pm on the 29th, and ironically for a man who would claim that trains under him always ran on time, it was an hour and 40 minutes late, arriving at 10 to 11 on the 30th of October. He showed up at the Quirinale Palace, claiming that he had had no time to change with a black shirt, green-grey trousers and boots. He said he had come from the field. After receiving the nomination from the king, he left and set out his list of ministers in just a few hours. Those nominated would be informed later. The swearing-in ceremony was set for seven in the evening on the 30th. Mussolini did not have suitable clothes for the event, so he borrowed a pair of trousers from one of his closest friends, Aldo Finzi. Finzi would later fall from grace and then join the resistance, only to be killed in Rome at the massacre of the Fosse Ardeatine under the Nazis in March 1944. Finzi was Jewish. The king asked Mussolini to now put a stop to the march of the black shirts, but the new prime minister politely refused, and that very same evening, a first contingent entered Rome through the Porta del Popolo gate. The leader of the contingent, Giuseppe Bottai, insisted on leading the march through the San Lorenzo district, the red district of Rome, populated by left-wing activists. Initially, things went peacefully, but at a certain point a shot rang out, which the fascists claimed had been an attack on them. In the ensuing firefight, 13 local residents were killed. No fascists died. This sparked a Cacial Rosso, a red hunt, with ample use of castor oil torture, targeted assassinations, and some good old-fashioned book burning. On the 31st of October, the great event was held, the march of the black shirts through Rome, starting from Villa Borghese. The actual march coming two days after the state had shamefully capitulated without a fight. The black shirts filed past the balcony of the Quirinale as the king watched. Mussolini would later state that, if he regretted anything, it was not marching into the Quirinale, since it would be the king, in agreement with the great fascist council, who would depose Mussolini on the 25th of July, 1943. For now, Mussolini and his fascist party were in power. 
Many politicians at the time saw this as a temporary solution. The enthusiasm for the fascist movement would eventually subside and everyone could settle back into regular political life. Mussolini would hold on to power for over 20 years. Fascism 100 is a series of the A History of Italy podcast commemorating the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Fascist Party and the March on Rome. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com We're also on social media where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram. If you would like to support the show, you can head to our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, go to the support page and become a Patreon supporter to have access to ad-free episodes and extra content, or make a one-time donation on PayPal. We thank you very much if you decide to do so. Fascism 100 is researched and presented by me, Mike Corradi, and by Matteo Marconi. Music by Fabio Debbi. Look him up on his YouTube channel. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, resistete. Resist, resist, resist. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.